0: The Frighteners is, it isn't enough to say that you have never done a movie like this. There's just never been a movie like this, I don't believe.
1: I, I, don't, I don't think so either, and that's just so, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'd wanted to sit in this chair and have somebody say that to me. And if they then said, and it was horrible or terrible, I mean, that would almost still be fine. Um, although I don't think it is, I think it's good, but, but just to do something unusual, I think that that's a, uh, that's, um, you know, that's credit uh, uh, due to, to Peter Jackson. He's just, you know, not a regular human being. And he, and, you know, that was the, the lure to me, the fascination to me, because I've really been in a uh, an area, given, as you mentioned, that I've been doing this for so long, and, and, and I now am looking for, <clears throat> especially the last couple of years, just things that interest me and experiences that interest me, and I don't, I'm not looking for a paycheck, and I'm not looking for, you know, pats on the back. I'm just looking to have a good time and enjoy acting and to work with talented uh, um, people. And this was a great experience. I had no idea when I went to New Zealand what this was going to be or what this guy was going to do. And um, right up to the moment last night where I saw the film for the first time, I was learning new things about this movie. And I was really happy with a lot of choices that he made um, because the movie is, is, you know, is accessible and it's commercial and it's all of those great things. But it's also it's just an odd movie. You know, it's very... You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of, and I think it's a different movie, but when I saw Twelve Monkeys, you know, and I said, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know, um, I really liked it. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, it's it's a, you know, it's a thriller and, and I think that that part of it jumped out at me when I watched the movie last night I think I, I underestimated that when I was doing it, just how scary it is and how uh, intricately plotted it is and how, you know, all these things tied up and, and all that stuff because You know, for me, a lot of fun is in the comedy, so I was kind of doing that stuff at the beginning, but but the pacing of it and that uh, really jumped out at me. But it is an unusual film.
2: Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 33.1, Anzac Cinema. Ago, I asked a friend of mine, Paul Emig, to pick a movie, any movie, for the Super 70 podcast. He chose Peter Jackson's Brain Dead. And needless to say, this was not my cup of tea. But we don't care about bad taste at the Super 70 podcast. We don't care if it has a budget of $20,000 or $200 million. We don't care if it's shot on Super 8 or 70 millimeter. All we care about, if I may be allowed to... Paraphrase Russell Crowe is if we are entertained. Also, for the previous year, Ben Waterhouse has been begging me to watch the same film. Now, what are the chances that I could find two people on this planet that both love Brain Dead? While we dissect the work of Peter Jackson, we digress through his work to other towers of Anzac cinema, reach around the edges of the uruk High, and debate the merits of the Beatles.
3: I have I know that you've watched this movie because you're right. I've been pestering you to watch things like this for like. What, what's your real opinion? I mean, I know the gore might not be really what you're looking for in a movie, but overall, I mean, did you find it entertaining?
2: Um, entertaining is a strong word. Like, I don't, <laughs> don't want to. I'm, I'm not interested in it. And <clears throat> I. The gore is off-putting to me. I'm not a horror guy. I'm not a not a gore guy. I'm not even like really a camp guy. Like I do like the Zucker brothers and what they do with camp, but I, I found it very very hard to um, relate to something like this. But it, it does show that, uh, Jackson and his his crew because it must be said that um, this is these are the early days of Weta, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and and his practical effects team and his set team and they went on i mean they're still together to this day and it is fucking shocking what that team has done mm-hmm. on such a monumental level and it's it's one of these it's the same same scenario i have when 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 i talk to anyone about game of thrones because i hate game of thrones i can't stand game of thrones i think it's i think it's shit tv and every time i get into it with anybody about it they all they always bring up the storytelling which is which is absolutely what i hate about mm-hmm. it But you can't watch a single episode of Game Game of Thrones and not be blown away by the production value. Right, absolutely. It is shockingly good from day one. Some of it's kind of confusing, and that's a storytelling issue, not not a production value issue. There are hundreds of people in Northern Ireland who should be very, very proud of working on that film or that, that whole TV series. And I feel the same about the people at Weta and the people in New Zealand. This is a small corner of the world that I'm sure uh, everyone just dismisses because it doesn't do anything, and they just make these value judgments about uh, places with low population, about their ability to be um, capable to do X, Y, or Z, intellectually capable to to storytell or to to put two pennies together to make something of value. And I think that uh, Jackson and his team in New Zealand specifically, just blows that out of the water and it's not because it's white and it's not because it descends from from uh, the western tradition of x it's it's just because there's just nobody there there's a very low population in new zealand and there always has been mm-hmm. and uh, the idea that they have just blossomed into this juggernaut that has created so much the past uh, 30 years is really quite impressive and it, it's it's the same situation in hong kong you, know, you look at Hong Kong and you think, well, yeah, there's there's nine million people in Hong Kong. Well, yeah, but not in 1980, right? Not in 1970, not in 1960 when they were just they were they were the Hollywood of the East, and and still like s- just no money, no money in Hong Kong making a a completely disposable product that was turned over and sometimes burned or trashed. And you know, most films made in Hong Kong the past fifty years don't even survive because they recycled the nitrate, right? So it was it was something that was uh, spectacular that almost lived in the moment. Yeah, And I think that that New Zealand is luckily we uh, they developed later than Hong
4: Kong, mm-hmm. um, but I think their their tradition is going to be just as fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think New Zealand is is so interesting geographically. You kind of look at the Middle Earth movies and you realize. Those are all the same country. That there is a country that has snow capped mountains and, and that has beaches and has all these places. I mean, yes, some of it's computer generated, but some of it could be a tourism video uh, for the island of New Zealand.
1: Welcome to Middle Earth, my friend. I'm here to guide you on your journey. So cease your rebel rousing and listen very carefully and obey all crew member instructions and all illuminated signs. If the seatbelt sign were to illuminate, return to your seat right away. Make sure all valuables at your feet are pushed under the seat in front of you. And fasten your seatbelt low across your hips. Although we recommend you keep your seatbelt fastened through the flight, if you do need to get up, release by lifting the lever or pressing down on the button. Oxygen is precious to you beyond measure. So, if an oxygen mask should drop down from above, pull down on the mask, place over your nose and mouth, and adjust the elastic on both sides for a secure fit. Oh. There's no need to sound the alarm if the bag doesn't inflate. There's plenty of oxygen flowing through freely. If you have halflings or young ones, secure your own mask before helping with this. <laughs>
5: If
0: there's a mishap during takeoff or landing, brace yourself on the seat in front of you. I myself prefer the more compact method. Put your hands on your head, your elbows on either side of your legs, and your feet flat
1: on the floor. When seated in Business Premier, sit upright, rest your hands on your thighs, and keep your feet firmly on the floor. Life jackets are easily put on while seated. Just rip open the pouch, slip it over your head, clip the waistbands together and tighten. In economy class, it's located under your seat. If you're seated in a sky couch, it's in your leg rest. In premium economy, it's here under your seat. And if you're seated in business premiere, it's located here beside you.
5: Inflate your life jacket by pulling on the red tab. But only when leaving the aircraft.
1: If you need to inflate the life jacket a bit more, roll into the mouthpiece! Crew will provide cute little life jackets for our littlest people, should you need one. Smoking anything, including electronic cigarettes, anywhere on board is forbidden territory, as it's dangerous. <gasps> We have lighting in each aisle to guide the way out if it's dark. Your crew are now pointing out your exits. Your nearest exit could be behind you.
5: Count the
4: rows to the exit so you know the fastest route out.
0: It's time to stow all
1: electronic devices. As you're on board a 777 aircraft, lightweight, handheld electronic devices may be used at any time. For more information, please refer to your safety card or ask one of the flight attendants. Thank you for embarking upon your journey with Air New Zealand. May your path always be guided by the light of the stars, and may the future bestow upon you all the happiness and adventure our Middle Earth has to offer. That's a wrap, right, everyone.
4: I hope you enjoyed it. Um, so I think just having some of that, some of the sweeping vistas, you know, makes it just more cinematic and it could inspire so many different looks and, and kind of visual styles, which kind of makes this so interesting because this, this is all indoors you know this is not taking advantage of kind of the big sweeping new zealand um you know geography like so many of peter jackson's other movies you know other than the skull island shots you know this this all takes place indoors um which is you know which is just kind of remarkable it do it almost doesn't fit the profile um
2: it's like they shot they shot those three films and the Hobbit too, I take it, mm-hmm. uh, in exactly the right country for that type of fantasy story. I don't know if that can ever be repeated, uh, particularly with that. Like I, I, I did see the Rings of Power, mm-hmm. and I did like the Rings of Power, but not nearly as much sure. as as the Lord of the Rings. And I, and the Hobbit was interesting, but it did not blow me away like Lord of the Rings did. That to me just seemed like a. It, big, a money grab.
4: It was enjoyable. It should have been one movie, not three.
2: Right, right. Well, the last movie is like one paragraph in the book. Right, you know, um, but it 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 did convey the, like you were saying, the physical environment of New Zealand did convey mm-hmm. uh, that sense of fantasy very successfully. But i I am wondering when when something else is going to break through and who that person will be and what will the story be about? Because it was, it was Peter Weir who kind of rocked everybody's world with, uh, the picnic hanging rock that kind of got everybody just kind of shocked. Like, Oh, did you see that movie? Mm -hmm. And then he, he made something that was distributed everywhere, which was Gallipoli. And I mean, that was released worldwide.
4: But was he Australian or was he New Zealand? He was
2: Australian. Right. Yeah. There's, uh... And then Jackson was basically, as far as being from, from that part of the world, Jackson was the next one. So right. this is another thing about Australia and New Zealand. dude. Since, effectively, since they both left the crown as colonies and became Commonwealth countries, they were interchangeable in terms of their citizenship and mm-hmm. you could move back and forth freely. That only stopped after 9-11. So now New Zealanders and Australians have very hard time going back and forth, whereas before nine eleven that was it was almost seamless. Russell Crowe is the is the one who's sort of banging this drum right now because he was he is effectively an Australian, uh, but he was born in New Zealand, so he has that citizenship and he's he's got problems going back and forth. He's like, I should not have this problem. No, no one from these two countries should have this problem. Right. And especially when you you complicate it with the, the Aboriginal situation, like the Maori should not be having that problem either. Or other indigenous people in Australia, anyway. So Jackson was, was sort of the next out of that world that that came to to that. And I am very interested to see who the next person is going to be from New Zealand.
3: Well, there's already a uh, flight of the Concord. That
2: <laughs> yes, those two and guys. Then you've got Taiki Wattiti, Aditi, yes.
3: Which, if you look at their sense of humor. Is
5: so relatively
3: hard. in that that ballpark.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah. Girl, now we're going to make love. You know how I know? Because it's Wednesday. And Wednesday night is the night that we usually make love. Tuesday night is the night that we usually go to your mother's place and I teach her how to use the video machine again. But Wednesday night is the night that we're making love. When everything is just right, you're not too tired from your after work social netball team practice. There's nothing good on TV. Conditions are perfect for making love. You turn to me and say something sexy like, I might go to bed, I've got work in the morning. I know what you're trying to say, baby. You're trying to say, oh yeah, it's business time. brushing out teeth That's all part of it That's foreplay Foreplay is very important In love making Then you go Sort out the recycling Which isn't part Of the foreplay But it's still Very important Next thing you know We're in the bedroom You're wearing That same old Ugly baggy t-shirt With the stain on it That you got from That team building exercise You did for your old work Several years ago Size
5: 99
0: I take off my clothes But I ship over my jeans Because I still wear my shoes But it's okay because I turn it all into a sexy dance Next thing you know I'm wearing absolutely nothing Except for my socks And you know when I'm down to just my socks What time it is It's business time sexy like, is that it? I know what you're trying to say, girl. You're trying to say, oh, yeah, that's it. And you tell me you want some more. Well, uh, I'm not surprised, but I am quite sleepy.
3: of the concord is ridiculous they also came out with what we do in the shadows
2: my wife is a huge fan of that yeah, yeah
3: it's it's one of the funniest things and i like the movie version of it yeah. is just i mean hilarious and of course ragnarok is like the top
2: five best marvel movies ever Absolutely. made
3: yeah but yeah. i'm not so as much as i like comic books i'm not i watch the marvel movies because it's in in universe It's because I'm curious as to what's happening on Earth 1999. It has nothing to do with the quality of movies because it is pure, trite bullshit. And I recognize that the whole way through. But Taika Waititi did uh, Jojo Rabbit.
5: Today
3: you boys will be involved in such activities as war games.
0: ambush techniques. and blowing stuff up.
5: I don't think I can do this. Was? Of course you can. Aber dann kommst du.
0: When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. You kept me in
4: so much trouble. Kids, it's time
5: to burn some books. Yeah. You're growing up too fast. Ten year olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Uh, Hitler.
4: I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Did you know Jews can lead each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. Ah! Ah!
1: You know what I am? See? A Jew. Gizintai.
0: Sheesh! That was intense!
5: What am I going to do? No idea. Got it? it! I've was negotiated! Go to the house
0: and blame Winston Churchill. Will negotiate
5: if I tell on you you'll be in big trouble they'll never win love is the strongest thing in the world
1: your mother took me in she's kind she treats me like a person
0: you two seem to be getting on well
1: she doesn't seem like a bad
5: person I'm the enemy
1: you're not a Nazi, Jojo. You're a 10 year old kid who likes dressing up in a funny uniform and wants to be part of a club. You okay?
5: oh, no! oh, God. Nothing makes sense anymore. Yeah, I know. It's definitely not a good time to be a Nazi.
3: Thank you, sir, right. for bringing that up. Go, please continue. And that is a hilarious, I mean, it's it's so tongue-in-cheek, so parody. It's It's this. That's what it is. It's that idea of I'm taking something serious and moving it so far to the right or to the left that now it's almost surreal. And when you hit that point, it's like the humor is just undeniable. Like my best friend's Hitler, <laughs> you know.
2: Jojo
4: Rabbit yeah. is an unsung
2: masterpiece. Go ahead, Paul.
4: Well, you know, you kind of mentioned these being Commonwealth countries, and and I know that Peter Jackson has said that he was a huge Monty Python fan growing oh, yeah. up, and and I think you can absolutely see the dark humor, uh, the irreverent humor, kind of throughout you know both taika and peter jackson so i think a huge influence in, in that sense of humor and, and maybe that sense in, in taking things that you know we might hold as sacred cows and and laughing about them um and, and not even necessarily smart humor but 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 still um you know daring and and very cutting humor
2: and we lost out us being americans lost out on on um The whole Monty Python Mm -hmm. explosion simply because the tape system that we use in the States for our television system is different than it was in in Britain. And to make it very, very simple, their tape system is higher definition. And in order to bring Monty Python or anything from from the BBC over to the United States, you had to basically dumb it down to a lower resolution on on a on a different technology in order to play it and somebody had to pay for that every episode of monty python and nobody nobody wanted to pay they had to raise the money to do it whereas new zealand australia canada and i think 17 other countries including south africa they were already using that system and a lot of it was planned but a lot of it was just circumstance so there was like a seven-year delay in monty python So it was almost like these these guys like Peter Jackson had a leg up, so to speak. Sure. Because they were raised on Monty Python for the Americans River. The only reason why I watched Monty Python was it was on Channel 8. Who were the only ones who would play it. And I thought, oh, there might be some chance for some nudity. Right. Because they were running it on BBC4, and they were the only channel that allowed that type of stuff. And, of course, they only did it for laughs. They didn't do it for exploitation. Right. Which is not why Americans show it. They almost 100% show it for, for exploitation. Right. Jojo Rabbit, to to keep this, I I want to spend some time on that one. Eventually, that's gonna hit the Super Seventy podcast. That film is a masterpiece. Yeah, I agree. And uh, that came out in twenty nineteen. That was that was a heavy hitting year. Like it was nominated for best picture, which shocked everybody. But it was also nominated with like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Ford versus Ferrari. That, but that was a killer year. Mm-hmm. I can I don't even remember which one won. That I think it was Parasite. Parasite
4: won that year, which in and of itself. You know, landmark, you know, foreign language film winning.
2: Right. Right. Of course, I'm I'm a little bit biased because of my background in film and cinema and specifically the 20th century German film. I obviously was rooting for Jojo Rabbit all the way. I was blown out of the water by Parasite. But then at the same time, like if you'd seen other South Korean films... You know, uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, for example, or Old Boy, of course, is the big one that everybody talks about. Uh, Lady Vengeance is probably my favorite one out of those three. Um, I I saw that just being in this very long tradition of what the South Koreans were doing or even Squid Game, the TV show, is an extension of all that. So in a sense, I wasn't surprised at Parasite. So I didn't necessarily think that it should win. Best Picture that year because I I just thought well the South Koreans are doing this stuff all the time it's good don't get me wrong but right. their their level of cranking stuff out that that is really really high I mean it's like everyone else is just now catching on to the phenomenon which
4: I think was the big argument when like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon came out and everyone in America lost their mind and anyone right. who watched that type of cinema be like. It was good, don't get me wrong, but this is like 20 other movies. Right. Like oh, exactly. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, just, you haven't seen those 20 movies You right. saw this one.
2: Yeah, yeah. People like Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino were shaking their heads going, Jesus Christ, this is so old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when, when Enter the Dragon was 1973. You know, I recently, I saw uh, Crouching Tiger on the re-release. They did it uh, just like three, four months ago mm-hmm. and I, my son and I went. They were, what an amazing film. Yeah. Um, and uh, Zheng Ziyi, who plays the you know, the girl, the, not to be condescending, she, she is an amazing actress. And I can't – you have to be careful because Michelle Yeoh is in that film, and she right. kicks supreme ass yeah. all the way. But she, she has always been underrated as an actor. Right. She's always been amazing. And Criterion's got four or five Michelle Yeoh pictures right now, and it, 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 they—they're shocking how good she was 30 years ago. Right. So I got to be careful when I say this, but I think Zhang Ziyi has an emotional range in that film, which is she really writes. amazing for her
4: age. And and she, I mean, should have been nominated for supporting actress. Yes. Yeah, so good. You know, and we can kind of go go off tangents here, but like, does anyone have a more diverse filmography than Ang Lee?
2: Oh, mm-hmm. I know. Yeah.
4: You're talking about <laughs> a guy who can make. Sense and Sensibility, which I, I'm going to say is the best Jane Austen movie I've ever seen. Is that the one with Keira Knightley? Uh, no, Keira that, that's that's the one with the Emma Thompson and the young Kevin oh. and Alan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Made the Hulk, you know, which is trashy, rash. but kind yeah. of. Yeah, you know, made Brokeback Mountain, made Life of Pi, um, you know, made Crouching Tiger. I mean, these are all movies that are so drastically different from each other. Um, and yet all like almost all spectacular films, I don't want to say all because he's made some stinkers in there um,
2: well I mean the the Hulk is the one that stands out, but i'm I'm one of those weirdos who thinks that if you had just again uh, miscasting sure if you just had someone else play Eric Bana, it's very Eric Bana play the Hulk if i don 't know who that person would be like it 's very easy to say just put Mark Ruffalo in that situation sure, sure. And, you'd, and you'd have a hit i don 't know if that's true. But I'm very interested in everything else going on in that film. Um, I know it's like it's really passe, the way that he uses the comic book frames to transition between scenes. But I actually liked that in that film. I like what Lee was doing with the camera. I like the gamma room. Uh, I like Jennifer Connolly. I thought Sam Elliott was a bit much. Like, Mm -hmm. let's find an old crusty man to put as a general. Like, he's the go-to guy for a role like that, particularly after, um, you know, when we were soldiers he did with Mel Gibson. But other than that, like, I didn't have a problem with the finale or anything. I was just one of those odd people out, like, yeah, the only thing wrong with it is, in my opinion, is Eric Bana.
4: Well, at that point, I mean, our, our superhero frame of reference was, like, Superman, and Batman, and the Tim Burton Batmans, you know? So it wasn't like we even had an appetite for those yet. I think this was almost kind of toe in the water very early. I mean, you you was could even... It before Iron out. Man, wasn't it? It was. I don't,
3: I don't know if you can say that, though, because we yeah. had... We had appetite. I guess. Well, no, because we had Blade. We yeah. had other similar superhero movies. We had uh, Kick-Ass and other things like that. I mean, the appetite was there. The Rocketeer. Yeah, I mean, you had a group of kids, right, that that grew up in in a more or less, I won't say the golden age, because that'll make people think I'm talking about, like... Flash Gordon. They, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But, like, we, it was a group of kids in the same way as, that. like, you see anime being a very popular thing now. 20, 30 years ago, there was a group of people... That went to Suncoast and bought like Honey Cutie and all of this other stuff and Ron Mahap, I was one of those guys. Right, right. You know, and, and, and then now it is this super popular thing. It's in a sense the same way. So comic books were for dorks when I was a kid. But I was I was, you know, always buying the subscriptions, riding my bike down to get Twizzlers and comic books and catch up on whatever was happening with X Factor or whatever it may be. And then as we've grown up, like our kids and a whole nother broader swath of people have gotten involved in this to where now it's like, as opposed to being like a one-off, like where blade, it was like, people didn't even recognize that as a comic book movie. Now there's an appetite so much there that the whole genre is becoming trite and it's becoming kind of like just pulled together. Like, so I, I know you're saying you like rag. I, I, hated Ragnarok <laughs> really <laughs> like, Really? because it's it's from my point of view they could have done more with the characters you know it's not supposed to be as they've gone along with this it's just more humor and more humor it's more slapstick more all this other stuff where it's like I feel like they're leaving out the character development because Thor is supposed to be and I, I know I'm going way off on a tangent right here but Thor is supposed to be like this hardcore badass barbarian guy that bar- very rarely speaks, like totally sent to Earth just to learn humility because he had a problem with like every time somebody disagreed with him, killing them with his fucking hammer. So, you know, and then they put him in here and now we've got, you know, Chris Hemsworth and it's all like. <laughs>
4: Lots of quips, yeah.
3: Yeah, and it's just like you're degrading the genre. You know, you know, you can make
4: an argument that it's a great Taika Waititi movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, maybe less than what you're hoping for as a comic book movie. Right, right. I just think the representations,
3: you know, it's like the more popular something gets, the more trite it gets. It's in the same sense as, like, Led Zeppelin, right? Everybody, at some point, every guy in America between the ages of 14 and 20, if you were to ask them, their favorite band is going to be Led Zeppelin. Like, does that make it trite? Absolutely. Does that make it bad? No but then you get Greta Van Fleet.
2: Well,
4: wow. <laughs> so I don't know, yeah, we, 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 we kind of hijacked you here. <laughs> no, that, that's
2: fine. Um, I think that's a discussion for a, a music podcast, although I, I like Greta Van Fleet. But, I mean, to me, Ragnarok is, is his second best film. I mean, JoJo takes the cake. Just because of the danger that it has and it's sort of timely in its its presentation and it, it tackles issues that I mean I don't know if, if Tycho Atides is, is gay or not. And no. it's gets kind of irrelevant to the the fact yeah, that they're married with kids. Okay, so there's there's this enormous Jewish too. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's a Polynesian Jew. Uh and the the entire undercurrent. I mean, obviously, there's a Jewish undercurrent that's going on in Jojo, in which is really, really, really funny. I wouldn't say it's an undercurrent; it's just, it's a uh, it's definitely a main current. But the there's the homosexual undercurrent that's running running alongside fascism, which is absolutely killer. Mm-hmm. And he nails it every single time. Most of it is going through uh, Sam Rockwell, but there's other things in the film as well. And I I, I can't tell you. Uh, what it's like to to pick up on that is as someone who's actually studied Weimar, and when you think about all these guys in Weimar who went into um, several organs of the Nazi state um, hiding their sexuality, and o- only to 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 find out that, uh, that that they weren't welcome anymore, you know, particularly after the the purge in 1934, and that's sort of on display I And mean, when Rockwell comes out in the end with that fucking cape and playing the music while he's going in the battle with the eyeliner and everything. I just thought that was brilliant. I just (laughs) thought I knew exactly what he was doing there. It was, it was gorgeous. And then of course, Scarlett Johansson has a wonderful performance in that. Mm -hmm. So the, the next one after Taika, I guess it'll be interesting to see what the subject matter will be, what the direction will be. Australia and New Zealand have an enormous problem dealing with what they've done as a colony. Um, to their to their people. And we're starting to see some of that come out in Hollywood, particularly with Dwayne Johnson and uh, a little bit more recognition of Simone Americans or Moana, the Disney film we're starting to see more of these Polynesian effects come out. It'll be interesting to see what happens when when um, the Aboriginal isn't like uh, the chauffeur of Crocodile Dundee and mm-hmm. is used for a
4: punchline actually has like a, a story to tell or someone like whale riders maybe the only example i can think of, right. of of a movie that's actually told from like the maori perspective oh that's good and, and i don't know if if the director and it's a female director i don't know if she is maori herself um, or, or if she's even you know continuing to make films in that line or that just happened to be a, a good story
3: there actually is a tv series told from a maori point of view it's about i forget what it is but it's So what it's about is this mythical character from the Maori, whatever, and it's, God, I'm going to have to look it up, but it's, it's basically, it's told as these mythical characters make their way through regular New Zealand, regular, like Australian life. I think it's called like the hairy man or something like that, but it's pretty interesting because it's not, it's not, I I like movies. I like things basically based on original ideas. Like I could care if it's trash
4: Just as long as it's new and innovative.
3: You know, and it's, the idea of it is pretty cool because it's, it's not necessarily, the monster in it isn't necessarily a monster kind of thing. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just kind of existent and plodding through the world with all this mythical background. It's
2: pretty interesting.
5: Hmm.
2: Mm. Well, The original idea is what counts. Like, that's why bad taste stands out, that's why meet the Feebles stands out or brain dead stands out, dead alive is because it's an original idea right right And, and how we, we're processing our history is going to be very very interesting to see. We're constantly seeing new films about um, war, new takes on war. Um, although everyone is still stuck, here we are 23, 25 years from saving Private Ryan, and that aesthetic is still running uh, the visual narrative of how we talk about the Second World War. Australia and New Zealand have been very um, slow to uptake uh, their contribution to that and even even Canada has it would be interesting to see how those three countries uh, burst out of that, that framework and take on those issues I'm interested to see that because we're, I love war films
5: mm-hmm.
2: right and Australia and New Zealand were very very uh, involved in the Pacific War and even the war in the Middle East um, in European theater and but all three of those countries really, really focus on their First World War experience because they gained independence um, shortly after the war as, as separate states in the Commonwealth. So they they really center on well, the Canadians, for example, we were at Vimy, or the Australians and New Zealanders, they say we were at Gallipoli, you know, or even the Newfoundlanders who who lost uh, most of their what you could call an army in the Battle of uh, Passchendaele in 1917. So. Moving out of that to this sort of almost a bloodletting slash victimhood framework, and into uh, something more exciting, um, Russell Crowe tried really hard to do this a few years ago with the, with a movie called The Water Diviner, in which he played a, a a failing farmer in the outback who went to go find his two sons who died at Gallipoli. I've read probably twenty books on Gallipoli. And I'd like to think that I'm interested in that story, but I barely made it through that film. It was so utterly boring and he he helped develop the script and he directed it yeah, and I could not find a reason to care about it and that should tell you a lot about the the failure of the film as, as to convey a narrative right Maybe that's just me, I'm sure there's other people who love it, but they've probably even heard like of it so right, right, yeah,
4: right the water diviner, don't look it up right. <laughs> <laughs> So, you made it to go from, uh, in just half an hour, we were watching uh, somebody disassemble a room of zombies with a lawnmower. Yes. And now we made it to uh, to Australia's entrance into uh, to World hey, War. Hey, yeah. you know, <laughs> it all
2: goes back to that. Yeah. We, it could be worse. We could be talking about Greta Van Fleet. <laughs> So, so the uh, the Frighteners, uh, I saw in the theater, like I said. Ben, when did you see it?
3: Uh, I saw most of the movies I saw as a kid at home on VHS and stuff. So and it, and it's weird, but I had a, a friend of my dad's owned a VHS rental place, you know. So I would go over there and I would uh, weed eat and do odd little chores for him and stuff like that. And he would let me rummage through whatever was whatever was available and take free rentals and stuff like we didn't have like a ton of money growing up so it was always that situation where it was like we can win one movie but everybody has to agree so it would be like romancing the stone or some shit like (laughs) that you know (laughs) and like here I am and I'm like you know digging through this guy's back rooms all these VHS tapes that never get rented anymore and being like you know literally like searching through Traumaville searching through stuff like that and watching it all and I, I did the same thing for Frighteners. I can say that I did like the movie. Do I put it in the same grade that you do?
5: Probably. There has been a destructive force unleashed on this town such as I have never seen. Oh my God, I don't believe this. this is not
1: happening!
5: We have got a poltergeist! device.
1: Okay, well, folks, I can do a clearance, but it's not going to be cheap. Although I do offer a six-month guarantee. That fellow takes us totally for granted. Hey, Stuart, in or out,
0: huh? Frank Bannister had a remarkable ability... Psychic investigator? ...to communicate
1: with the dead. You, you could see spirits? Emanations are normally confined in a cemetery. You cannot push spirits around! Although they do
0: escape. <laughs>
4: and an uncanny knack. We're gonna scare the living daylights out of your parents. For <laughs> making a profit off the living. We're supposed to be his business partners. Everyone says that you're a
5: fraud, but I've seen what you can do. Give it up, Frank. Death ain't no way to make a living. But now... <laughs>
0: Some things put the fear of death in the living.
1: What is happening to me?
0: And send the dead God! running
5: for their lives.
1: i seen a figure in a cape. That was the soul collector.
5: When your number's up, that's it. Frank, we got problems. All these murders that have been going on in
4: Fairwater, they're going to pin them on you. <laughs> some pictures and robert jenegas your next pal and the acclaimed director peter jackson we don't stop to the screen and start
5: today the frighteners
3: probably not like it was pretty good but you know uh you're gonna hate me for saying this but it wasn't flatliners Flatliners was a better movie. <laughs>
5: right.
4: Yeah,
2: I don't hate you for saying that, but I strongly disagree. What about you, Paul?
4: I'll be honest. I remember very, very little. Really? Yeah, I, I it was something. I had to look up on IMDb just to kind of get myself a frame of reference. Uh, it came out in, I think, 96. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I do remember about it is, uh, so my mom directed theater in the Northeast uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. And, and sometimes in, in the summertime, we would go up. Uh, drive up from Florida to Pennsylvania so she could direct a show up there, and and one of the actors that she directed uh, is in the Frighteners, is one of the ghosts. So Jim Fife, I had to actually look him up. So I remember there being, a, oh, I've met that guy. Like my mom's done theater with that guy. Okay, that's kind of cool. So I remember that being kind of the driving force. Just hearing, oh, hey, one of the guys from you know Lehigh Valley theater scene uh, is is in this movie, and and so that was kind of what what drew me to it. And I remember liking it okay, but I think that's one of those things. It's number one, I was in college, so so many new experiences. But number two, gosh, I consumed so much film, and that's just kind of one of those in in just that the middle of the film consumption that I had to where it neither stood out as as, as good or bad. It was just one of the thousands of movies I saw a year at that point. So yeah, I, I have not seen it since and don't remember it much. Well, I was pretty.
2: I was pretty amazed by it in the theater and, and particularly since it's sort of a regurgitation of the the story of Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend who went through the Kansas countryside or Nebraska countryside and murdering people, you know, and she was basically aiding and abetting him. He was executed and she spent the rest of her life in prison basically. (laughs) But I was kind of, I was kind of, I wouldn't say appalled, but I was really shocked while I was watching it that it was because I, Obviously, if you had heard about the Starkweather murders, you could tell right away that that's what Jackson was referring to. It's very edgy material, even in the mid-90s, to go for this. It's kind of like Lost Highway by David Lynch and how that's kind of like the O.J. murders. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like, Ew, wow, that's, you're going to bring that up? Really? You know, And um, Jackson didn't shy away from that. Of course, he was kind of removed from it a bit. And then, of course, Jake Busey is in it, who's uh, Gary Busey's son. Right. And he was huge in the mid-'90s, and he did this and Starship Troopers. But the, the real reason, I think, why the, why the Frighteners kind of held, at least in, in, in the, the cinema, the pre-internet explosion cinema world, is because of the Laserdisc. Mm-hmm. The Frighteners Laserdisc was the top five collectibles you must have. They ranked right up there with uh, the T2 box set that James Cameron had, had put out. And uh, the Criterion, Citizen Kane, which had interviews with people like Burt Reynolds talking about how important Orson Welles was. <laughs> you know, it's very strange. But the, the Frighteners had, was almost like, and, and the T2 set as well, the Frighteners was like film school in a box. Mm. It was really the first one where where Jackson was was really taking you through the nuts and bolts of what it was like to construct a film and you are a year out uh, from actually saying action and you have to have a schedule for X and if you decide that you on the 25th of May a year from now that you're gonna shoot this here's what you need for that to happen going down to a budget of okay well when we're shooting this is gonna cost us two hundred seventy five thousand dollars a day for ninety days and then you're gonna spend X amount of money before you get to that and then factoring film costs and what type of film stock that you want Is that stock going to be grainy? Is it going to be clear? And this is, of course, there were digital effects in the movie, but it wasn't shot digitally. It was shot on film. Taking all of that into effect, the T2 box set was very similar. It had a step-by-step breakdown of what it was like to edit a film. And, like, when you actually cut a film, you have to cut it in the middle of a frame because you're going to actually lose that entire frame to history as you join those two sides together so that it flows seamlessly through the celluloid, which is why it's really important to run a copy. To run a copy of everything, obviously, is very, very expensive. So Christopher Nolan just made a copy of Oppenheimer on IMAX, and it's 600 pounds of celluloid. Hmm. And it is so fucking expensive, I shudder to think what it's going to cost to make another copy, to ship that around, like how many IMAXs are going to run that print, right? And, and knowing that that print is going to degrade within two or three weeks of showing that three, four times a day. This is a very expensive situation where you have now in, in, in digital cinema where you've got projectors where you just, they automatically download the film and play the film with the code preset to the theater that it's given to. The distribution is just so different now. And Jackson walks you through all of that with the Frighteners. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're going to open in 2,800 theaters, we need 2,800 copies of film. So what does that mean? How many grandfathers must you have and then grandchildren in order to print out X amount num- 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 of copies? So you could actually be make turning a profit before you even have a release date but if you make too much film for too many theaters that are not going to show your movie you could lose that profit in a snap Mm. Mm. it's it was very very interesting for 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 people in 97 and 98 to just go step because of course in the laser discs they could put I don't know 30,000 frames into the laser disc and you could step through the frames individually just like it was a page in a book. And I'll give you an example. The seven laser disc, which was actually one of the ones that was also sought after, which my friend Dave actually has all of those pages of John Doe, writing that wild bullshit in his journal at two lines per space Mm. or something. All of that was photographed and is on the laser disc. Right. And they've, they've gone back to that production company and say, can you do this for the Blu-ray or the DVD? And they're like, no, no, that's no one's going to buy that. No one's, why would you want to read four hundred pages of an insane person talking about, you know, I threw up on this person on the subway you know, after I ate a hot dog with you know tamale sauce on it or something? <laughs> Very strange. Anyway, so that's why um, that's why the frighteners became so important to a lot of those people in the nineties. So naturally, when I heard that he was going to make Lord of the Rings, I was like, oh, that's the right person for it. Not having seen his other films, so that
4: was. This is probably good that I hadn't done that. <laughs> so, my, so having seen The Lord of the Rings, having seen The Frighteners, having seen what Peter Jackson's become, um, I don't know, does it give you more appreciation for watching the Oh, stuff? it does,
2: because he clearly, I mean, like I was saying with Bad Taste, he clearly knows what he was doing. He knew what he was doing before he even picked up a camera, which is different than most people. Most people works the other way. Like Steven Spielberg picked up a camera and then he learned how it work. It's almost like Peter Jackson learned how everything worked before he picked up a camera. Mm-hmm. He's very competent. The Lord of the Rings was is is deceiving. It's very deceiving. It's like he shot it like bad taste, but it looks like a, a 200 million dollar production. Like one of my favorite stories is I think it's on the Fellowship of the Ring DVD when they talked about doing the close-up of Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. And they had to just turn on every light in the studio to light her up because Galadriel is supposed to look like this other wel- worldly elf. But they had to really fire up her eyes. And these are in the days, of course, before uh, ring lights. You know, ring lights are everywhere now. Everyone with a freaking webcam and, and an OnlyFans account has a ring light. But back then, they didn't, they didn't really occur. So they went out and they grabbed some Christmas lights, like white Christmas lights, and they just racked them in a ring and they put them around the lens of the camera so it didn't interfere with the, the lens curvature or the glow because they didn't want to have any uh, lens flares which will ruin a film as long as you're not J.J. J. Abrams, who thinks that they're fucking fantastic. Hmm. So if you look at that shot, or if you, in the old DVD players, you could actually, like, zoom in to the to the image, you will see the Christmas lights inside her pupils, which was the effect that they wanted to have. You're talking about Christmas lights that cost, like, $25, right? So Peter Jackson had this very funny joke where he's like, this is the cheapest, most expensive film ever. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and he was the absolutely the right person right. for it. You know, I'm upset that the Hobbit turned into what it turned into. Hobbit
4: was a cash grab, yeah. Right. There.
2: Um and he I don't think he's entirely happy with
4: that. Well the I mean, key he ever planned. I think Guillermo de Toro was supposed to direct that right. trilogy, right? And and then I think only when things fell apart did Peter Jackson just say, Hey, if this is going to get made you know, and we're gonna get the money behind this to do it right, then my name needs to be attached to it. Right. And, and 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 I would agree with
2: him. Uh, I think I don't know that there was another person that could have done that job that way. I think he or Del Toro would have been. I've been much more interested in a Del Toro production. But also the other thing was, it was Jackson's production company hiring hiring Del Toro, and Del Toro didn't want to live for like eighteen months in New Zealand, right? Right. Which was a big, like even Christopher Lee was in his nineties when he did that. And he was like, I don't want to live in New Zealand for another eight months. I lived there for right. 18 months of the last and time and already I'm, like 95, I'm 95 was. years old. <laughs> so I got to think about where I want to live. You know, I, I completely empathize with that. How are you with, uh, let it be,
4: uh, you know, watched, uh, the first part, uh, and, and really enjoyed it. Um, but, but had to admit that, oh, wow, there's six more hours of this. So, um, you know, full disclosure you know we did just have a, a daughter graduate from from high school and and the last three months uh have been an absolute blur
5: <laughs> so I, I think we
4: sat down and watched let it be uh my son and i were like wow this is really really cool i do not have time to finish this at any point in the foreseeable future so i will circle back <laughs> but uh yeah I, I i know we were we talked about that as, as almost a prerequisite for this and i'm like well not not, not, not for this not but for it's done. it
2: needs to be a separate conversation. Sure, sure, So when you finish that, sir, have you seen Let It Be Ben? No. Okay, okay. It's on uh Disney, Disney Plus. Plus. Yeah. Do you have Disney Plus?
3: I have it, oh, but I don't good. I don't really mess with it. All right. <laughs> like, are, you inter-
2: are you interested in all in watching the Let It Be documentary?
3: Sure. What's okay. it? Uh, Please don't tell me it's about who the Beatles?
2: It is. Oh, Correct. Are no. you not a be- you're not a Beatles <laughs> fan?
3: No, we've had this discussion before. You don't like my opinion on it. Like (laughs) I consider them the first boy band and the creators of pop and therefore the downfall of music. (laughs) So, so if they are the downfall of music, what did, what did they kill? Oh, they just made everything shitty. Like, like, (laughs) like, I mean, so hold my hand and all this other stuff. It was just this, you had, so my whole thing is I'm, I'm a really big fan of, super creative people. Now, I'm not saying that the Beatles, because I've learned over the years with this opinion, I have to preface everything. Like, I'm not saying the Beatles weren't, uh, you know, creative people. I just, first of all, I don't think that they had the, they were great writers, not necessarily great musicians, would be kind of where it goes with that. And you ended up with the idea of the phenomenon kind of like pushing past what was good at the time. Because you had at the same time they were doing—I mean, you had Frank Zappa, Christ's sakes! You know what I mean? He's out there killing it, coming up with like super ingenious stuff. But the name, the group, the whole John Paul bullshit, kind of like led into this—I feel like a phenomenon where their their music was—it was the release of and the involvement in a certain culture, not necessarily the greatness of the music or the
4: originality thereof. Well, that's, I mean, that's about as contrarian as you get. I mean, we as a Western society can't agree on anything except for the fact that the Beatles were the best band in history. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. that's just uh, let
2: that let that sink in.
4: But you kind of talk about creativity. And and one of the things that I kind of got just from watching the first, you know, like 90 minutes of six hours or something like that um, is the fact that these 24 year old kids were coming up with these songs that we behold as masterpieces like on the fly. And, and that's kind of what this documentary captures in this, this kind of archival footage that Peter Jackson edited together. is It's just like, wow, did Paul McCartney just like write it with that song, rattling lyrics, rattling lyrics? Oh, and there it is, and that song's finished. And like, wow, just kind of the, the creative process that it captured, um, I don't want to say it demystified it because I don't know that anyone else could be that comfortable to just kind of write things on the spot. But I mean, these are these are guys that are now half as old as I am now. Uh, at their creative peak, and and just kind of writing things in the studio so quickly and effortlessly, it it, it was that 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 was kind of my takeaway from what I've seen so far. Yeah, John was uh, twenty eight years old.
3: I do have one question on that. So we're talking about a same time period where right before that we had like Tootie Fruity. I mean, the song yeah. when it was coming out at the time weren't exactly high poetry. That's true. Well, <laughs> like... It like, Fats Domino led into the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, you know. or Bicycle by Queen or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Queen, I'll give it to you. Like, they – so they created the idea – like, they used operatic thematics and everything like that, and that was their big album that came out, right? I mean, that was new. It was innovative. It, like, they were doing different stuff. took a lot of work. But, I mean, like, when you're talking about lyrics that are like, you know, do you want to ride in my car? like do you want to hold my hand you know do you want to do it it's just it's kind of like uh, like I said it's, you, I, I feel like you can tell that it was written by a 20 year old
2: well I mean I, I agree there's there's aspects of that in the Beatles that I'm not I'm not too like, people say that Sgt. Pepper is one of the greatest albums ever made and every time I listen to Sgt. Pepper I, I, I vehemently disagree fixing a hole is not nearly one of the greatest songs ever written it's about fixing a hole in the roof it's it's almost like Neil Young was accused of writing a song about "I'm sitting on the pot and it's a Thursday," and that's the song. And yeah, I, I suppose that the the music that surrounds those lyrics is is interesting, I guess. But it's not exactly groundbreaking material. Right. Not everything the Beatles
4: did was at a higher level. No, especially the, for, the early stuff was kind of the prototypian boy band.
3: Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that's you know, but but um, that's what they were trying to be.
4: Yeah. You
2: know, I mean that's that was sort of. Um, <clears throat> Uh, you, you're in this sort of very strange situation where I don't remember who wrote it. It was a very fascinating book, and they talked about how the the disposable industry of music in the 1950s and early 1960s uh, did not lend itself to uh, having a career in pop music. And the only three people that, that were on that arc of surviving who, came, who were around in 1955, who would still be around in 1985, say, was uh, Elvis Presley, uh, Buddy Holly, and Johnny Cash, and two of them just didn't make it, right? Those that was your the three people out of the hundreds and hundreds of, of people who tried to have a career. Jerry Lee Lewis went on and, and did album after album after album that nobody bought, right. that nobody played on the air, that nobody and everybody just cited one song. Johnny Cash actually had just dozens of songs, and it just mattered of who you were. You know, his, he had songs that were very popular that played on the radio like Boy Named Sue and so forth. But as we know, like in the evangelical community, particularly in the South, his songs about the gospel were entirely popular. They were mm-hmm. enormously popular. And uh, Elvis's songs about uh, when he sang gospel were equally just the that's why you had a separate uh, gospel chart that just sold an enormous amount of copies that very rarely is even referred to now. People just don't want to talk about it, right? Like Charlotte Church never existed. You know, that type of situation. Or we forget that Taylor Swift's first album was what exactly? Or Shania Twain's early career? Or Katie Lang's first five albums when she came from Alberta? ¶¶ That's just things that we just don't make it into the popular uh, uh, mindset. The The Beatles didn't actually think that they were going to last as long as they lasted because that was not the record. That was not the way acts went. Like you were lucky if you had one album, they had one album having two was a plus mm. and they made, they made 10 albums in seven and a half years. And so the, they definitely broke out of that mold. The fact that they, they couldn't stay together was a tragedy, but actually, if you look at the record, that was not the norm. You know, that wasn't the norm for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Now, that was a band that should have stayed together for, for the rest of that band's, uh, everyone's natural life, and that was impossible, right?
4: So, I mean, what bands do stay together, and how long do they stay together? Well, and, and how much does that impact have? I mean, you look at the Rolling Stones, they stayed together, and then they produced 30 albums, and, and maybe... Seven of them are good, you know. So you you kind of right. think about would the Beatles' legacy have been diminished if they made some mid career slump albums?
2: Yeah, and you know, their uh, John famously said that you know if you want the if you want the Beatles, I think he said this is '76 or something. Like if you want the Beatles together, just take one song off of everybody's solo albums and put it together because that's what it would sound like. Because by by the time they did, you know, the White Album, Abbey Road, let it not so much let it be that they were. They were basically just chopping it up and recording it independently. Especially with Abbey Road, where mm. John and Paul were on like different shifts, day and night. They were rarely in the studio together, except for the ballad of John and Yoko. Uh, but how would that how would that occur? Say as a reunion, and and everyone likes to talk about uh, John and Paul getting back together, getting the band back together. What would that look like, and so forth? But we, I think we have a, a better picture now than we did in 1980 or 1990 simply because other bands have done it. The Eagles have done it and they've made two extra albums since they broke up in 1981. And those albums are almost unlistenable. Just horrid, horrid, horrid stuff. One of them was put out by fucking Walmart. Like that's how bad it is. Uh, Fleetwood Mac has gotten together, has toured multiple times and has put out okay material mostly when they're working with each other with someone else out of the room like christine mcvee and lindsey buckingham did an album a couple years ago which is all right but it actually had one hit on it which kind of shocked everybody think is outside the 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 idea like they they got back together for the anthology of course in, in the mm-hmm. in the late 90s i think that tour would have been the, the highest grossing tour of all time true for sure whether or not they john and paul would have able to to crank out hits i i think that that would have probably gone into the 2000s mm-hmm. right but i i do think that it's possible i just think that turning down that amount of money
4: there there's a price that every band that won't ever get back together We'll get back together. There's right. there's a price.
2: Right. Even Neil Young got back together with
3: CSN. Mm-hmm. But it's like there's something nice about an ending, you know? It's sure. It's when you just it's the same the same thing with music and with stories and everything like that. There's a certain point where you should have stopped telling the story, but you just keep going and then you end up jumping the shark, and you're just like, oh crap! Now we got George R. R. Like, you know, yeah, like, you right. Sh- it's the George Lucas yeah. scenario. Yeah. No, that's, that's very true. Yeah. You know, look at, my, like, it, a good example, because that's what I was thinking about when you're saying that is think about Metallica. Like, Metallica has been together pretty much, with the exception of Cliff, the original bassist, like the same band for quite a number. Like, since, what, like 1988? 1988? Right, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, have they are they still great musicians yes you know their albums are for you know like ride the lightning uh Killem all stuff like that absolutely wonderful i'll even give you garage days one and two but i mean like load reload name name me name me a metallica album that's been released in the last 15 years that was absolutely not dog shit it's it's a problem you know, but it's it's the same group of people, right? And they all get along fairly well and they still still tour and stuff like that, but at a certain point you're gonna end up with a rehash story or you're gonna end up with uh, you know, like Mick Jagger out there at eighty five years old still trying to do the same thing. Well, I wonder thing. if it's
4: the econ- the economics of um, you know, being a superstar band nowadays is I mean nobody buys albums you stream the songs you want and you know maybe you listen to an album on spotify or apple music or amazon music or something like that the money's in the tour oh um, yeah. and, and and so that's why i think the bands you know reunite for this and just give the people what they want because they can make substantially more than even if they sold beatles level numbers on their albums um they're gonna make so much more on the tour yeah. Bottling that magic is difficult. We, we should we yeah. should mention, of course, that the highest selling album in between
2: 2001 and 2010 was the Beatles' one album, and the band hadn't put out a record since you know December. And there wasn't any new material. On there that was either. zero new material. It was 26 number one hits. Right. And the, the next album wasn't even close. I think it was an album by Prince. Right. It Wasn't even close to what the Beatles were putting out on their their greatest hits compilation. And it was something like twenty five or thirty million copies, mm-hmm. and that was an age after Napster, you know. So that's pretty pretty shocking. So I do see that now. When it comes to the Rolling Stones, or it even comes to uh, Paul McCartney, uh, I do take exception to they can't crank out hits. The Rolling Stones had a great song called "Doom and Gloom," uh, the one the the one video that they did with uh, Kristen Stewart uh, getting gas <laughs> and stripping. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, you think I would remember that, that song, but maybe I was distracted by something.
0: Yeah, I'm a dealer man, still dealing, yeah. I'm going to keep on dealing till I find myself a fit. Got to stop dealing, I believe.
5: That
2: was a great song. Uh, they had a series of albums in the '90s that were really good, the, um, the "Bridges to Babylon" and the, the "Voodoo Lounge." Uh, I don't think that they've they've so much lost it as as they just can't get into a room together, and nobody wants to hear those songs when they're on tour. But particularly "Bridges to Babylon," you're talking about uh, 12 tracks, and six of those songs are. Are bangers. Paul McCartney made one of the greatest albums of the 1990s called Flaming Pie. That was a great album. Of course, when you think of the 1990s, no one's thinking about Paul McCartney. Right? They're thinking about Nevermind, etc. Right? GQ just had this great um, article about Dave Matthews, who's on tour right now. I just saw him last month. Dave Matthews used to come to the Woodlands and play Three Nights because the, they couldn't play at the Astrodome, right? and lots of bands have done that over the years. Dave Matthews is not who you think about when you think about great nineties music. Mm-hmm. And yet he was one of their highest sellers. Sure. Right. Uh, and when you think about uh, the nineties, do you think about crash into me? No, everyone's thinking about 10 mm-hmm. or, you know, something by Pearl jam yield, which is not so bad. Everybody dogs it now. Vitology, which was uh, enormously popular. Right. So I'm, I look forward to the, you know, the documentary by Peter Jackson that looks into the career of Pearl Jam. I
3: think that'd right. be awesome. Okay, now that is a documentary that I would love to watch right there. I want Eddie Vedder drunk on MTV, making it seem like it was really, really difficult to stand on top of a bar stool. Do you remember that? No. Okay, so they had this... Uh, it was Into the mic. Yeah, sorry. MTV unplugged. It was in the 90s. And so you had Eddie Vedder... Who come to find out has or had at the time a super huge alcohol problem. Didn't, no. didn't well yeah, so he's apparently just downing bottles of wine as if it was, you know, I'm sure now he's downing yeah, water. But he he was sitting there doing this thing. He writes, I forget what it was on his arm, like freedom or slave or something like that, and this magic marker climbs up on top of this bar stool the whole time, like making it just seem like he he's climbing like this super precarious peak of a mountain like and i don't know if you're eddie vetter was not an out of shape man like he mm-hmm. was fairly well you know together and he's just struggling in his mid-20s to climb up this bar stool so that he can pull his own Sinead o'connor move
4: i remember, huh. that. Like, I remember that that's right and i think he wrote pro-choice on it yeah or some shit was, like yeah.
3: that something was- like like yeah. young man putting his political statement out there, yeah. like against the. And I
4: forgot the struggle to get on the stool. Yeah, it
3: was just like you were like this. There's no fucking way that this is so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> like how are you? How are you making it look this hard?
2: So how did how did it end? I'm that sure. was
3: that was pretty much it. It you was just him standing yeah. on top of a stool, like shaking back and forth, and you're just like, like you know, uh, you
4: finish the song, start yeah, another song, it's, you know.
2: Did you see a montage of Heck, the documentary about Kurt Cobain? Uh-uh. It was really good.
3: So here's another shocker for you. I'm not a huge Nirvana, Nirvana fan. Oh, that's like, fine.
2: That's, my son isn't either.
3: I, uh, I never got it. Like, I was more like Pearl Jam, you know, Stone Temple Pilots. uh yeah. And then yeah. later on, you know, like Echo and the Bunny Man and stuff like that. Sure,
4: sure. I liked SD2. So. What a, what about you? I I, I like Nirvana fine, and, um, but, um... You know, I, I think I was more into Guns N' Roses at the time. I, mean, I, I think you know Nevermind's a great album. I think 10 is every bit as good an album as Nevermind. Oh, sure, mind.
2: sure. Um, now, did you see Montage of Heck? No, 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 no. Um, I dragged my son kicking and screaming to see Moon Age Daydream, a documentary about Bowie. Mm-hmm. And it was a 100-minute acid trip. And I loved every minute of it. Okay. I, I saw it on
4: HBO Max or Max now. Yeah. Really, so
2: I was totally, if, if you know anything about Bowie, it's great. If you know nothing about Bowie, it is painful. My <laughs> son <laughs> has never forgiven me. He's like, Dad, I went in there with an open mind. I actually was, was like, I'm going to learn something about David Bowie. He fucking hated it. Just could not stand, didn't understand anything. He's like, I don't know when when the guy was born. I don't know when he died. I don't know uh, what school he went to. I don't know the, the impetus for any of his of his music. I don't know anything. And maybe he had a point. Maybe the Moon Age daydream is just for people who are already
3: Bowie fans.
2: Right. Right. And that probably should be put on the poster
3: before you walk into <laughs> Did you see the? Is that the? That's not the one where they have a, where they talk about him writing his musical, is it?
5: No, it like they have sure.
3: another documentary. It's kind of off subject, but they haven't just so you know it's not off subject. They have another documentary where he's he he is basically his life's dream. One of his life's streams since he was a child was to write a theatrical musical. So he found out that he was going to die, and that he worked on like that's what he did. Like, somebody came up to him more or less and was like, David Bowie, you've got eight months to live. So, in in effect, what he did was turn around and go, like, I'm going to write this damn musical.
2: Is that Black Star?
3: Yeah. Like, showed up to work every single day. Like, did the whole thing. Never told anybody that he was going to die or they had any issues because he didn't want it to affect production. Like, what the hell? Like, what a, like, solid entertainer. You know what I mean? Like, to sit there and be like, my purpose on this life is to create these works of art. See,
2: that—that and- that is what needs to be examined. Probably not, well, I mean, as much as I liked Moon Age Daydream, that probably has more of a success of breaching through a cinematic audience. Right,
5: right.
4: Because who knew that at the, at the time? It's like, oh, David Bowie's coming out with another album. Oh, David Bowie died, and here's right. this new album that was somebody who knew – that they were dying, but nobody else was picking up on that. Right,
2: and, I didn't even know he was sick when he passed. No, away.
4: no, kept it gets very, very. Yeah, very I mean, there's, there's it's a The same it. as
2: George Harrison. Um, what, what George Martin, the, the producer from Abbey Road, he he actually told uh, a reporter that he knew uh, personally. So, yeah, George is really sick, and it made the papers. And then apparently somebody picked up the phone and called George Martin and said, "Shut the fuck up about George. Don't say anything." And so he didn't say any. There was no other word out about George being sick, and the press dropped it. And then I think it was like three months later, and he died. Mm-hmm. And so the world was kind of shocked. But uh, I remember seeing that in Time Magazine or something. It was like, oh, George is sick, and then no, nothing was made of it. So I assumed that he was okay, right? Right. But then, then the next thing you know, he was dead. So George Martin kind of got slapped on the hand by Apple Corps or somebody, just like don't, don't, don't talk about it. It was really quite sad
3: do you think i think those are like great uplift i mean that's like humanity uplifted right the show must go on as the you know what i mean like when you like freddie mercury right he did kind of the same thing you know struggling through until the very end like the true i mean it's it's not exactly an optimistic story but it is very uplifting for the human on your point
2: of view you look at the grateful dead all the people in that band, and who's the last one standing? Bob Weir? Like, are you kidding? <laughs> it's like, the last person I, I suspected of making it through all those decades is Bob Weir. And here he is, like, not laughing, but hey, I'm the last guy. You know, everyone kind of knew that Jerry had no chance. Right. <laughs> there were like 15 people in that band. Right. It's very strange. Anyway. Okay. Uh last thoughts, anybody? About Peter Jackson
4: or Yeah, yeah. Well I, I musical I, documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, th- thank you for inviting me. This was this was kinda fun. I remember we were when you when you said, All right, next one, you know, is anything goes and I think I shocked you by, by selecting you know what we should do um, instead of just another Pulp Fiction commentary or any number of other movies that I appreciate. You know, it's like, you know what? There's this Peter Jackson movie. So, uh, you know, I, again, I, I love going back and, and seeing these directors who are incredibly polished mega filmmakers and watch their their, their first movie. And, and I think, you know, Spielberg's probably the exception because even his early movies are somewhat commercial. But if you go back and see Dead Alive from Peter Jackson or Piranha 2... From James Cameron, you know some of these. <laughs> yeah, a movie he doesn't
2: even want you to see. Oh, I yeah.
4: man. Uh, so, so I, I, I love kind of going back and, and seeing these. And and to me, it's like a, a drinking movie is its own genre. Something to where you can get together with a couple of people and just get hammered and watch this absolutely. Not, not even to say awful. um Because watching this somewhat sober, it's still pretty entertaining. But uh, it does kind of add add another element to it, Uh, I I think, the the fun factor.
3: (laughs) So, my closing, if I have to say anything about it, is this an intellectual exercise? Absolutely (laughs) not! But, I mean, like, is it a great work of art? Yes. Schlock counts, guys. Schlock counts. Like, we all like He-Man as a kid. We all like just brutal violence. Like, everybody loves uh, steel bikinis and sci-fi movies and stuff like that. Like, let's not overthink it. Let's just enjoy the hell of whatever they're throwing out there.
2: On that note, you got to tell Paul what you picked up recently.
3: Uh, what was that? In the back of your truck that relates to He-Man. Oh, God, yeah. So, my aunt's moving, and she moved out. I got all the original He-Man stuff. Like, I got a Castle Grayskull. I was looking through the bin. Like, I mean, I've got uh man of many faces all the original stuff like it is super great does
4: the skunk guy smell still smell i don't know i haven't
3: got that for oh, i man. remember when he was a kid he smelled like pepper though yeah, i thought was that was like the weirdest skunk thing smell, yeah. like and then ever since then and this is the weirdest thing i have connected that with hippies because patchouli smells very sure, similar sure. to me <laughs> like...
2: so on the he-man thing did you catch the new he-man release on netflix
3: no no i haven't i've stayed away so there was a big controversy i don't know if you're uh aware or not with kevin smith and what he did to he-man which i watched it i can tell you honestly i did watch it and it wasn't uh it wasn't as bad as people said it was but was it good no
2: well, that's kind of like the story of Kevin Smith, because yeah. everybody's saying this sucks, and then you watch it, and it's like, ah, eh, it's not that bad, actually. Yeah.
3: I have that opinion of, well,
2: I like yoga hosers. We just had this conversation recently. Yeah. Right, Tusk?
3: Oh. Tusk is, but I think, like, I, I thought about that after we had the conversation. It's probably just because I don't think, was it Nathan Lang or something like that? Who was in there the, uh, Justin, uh, Justin Long, Justin, Justin Long, Long. in Tuscan. I I don't think he fit into that movie. I just don't want to see bad things happen to him for some reason. Like, but if you would have put in like a like a Michael Sarah, yeah, let's oh fuck that yeah, guy. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: no, that makes total sense. Well, I also know that uh, Michael Park, who uh, played the old guy in the wheelchair, he was dealing with a lot of health issues. Mm-hmm. He was actually sick, and at the end of his life, and that was not the time for him to to take a role like that. They really right. needed to go to somebody. Who, who could stand to be more physical Yeah,
3: but yes also Yoga Hosers uh, art piece right there <laughs> gotta love that <laughs> what, what? Uh, I'm, I'm not
2: expecting people to, to, to be of two minds about Yoga Hosers I don't expect it to improve on the Rotten Tomatoes score, but <laughs> personally I, I like it other than uh, uh, Ralph Garman doing his stupid little impressions which I could do without I, I actually like the, the movie quite a bit
4: yeah, that's actually the one kevin smith i haven't seen yet so I, oh yeah, yeah I, I own it i own the blu-ray and i haven't seen it yet so you saw the one with the clown the one with the clown which one's that
3: oh man uh, it is a I'm stomach turning event that i have seen one it's like one of the rare movies that i just can't stomach watching twice oh was that the terrifier <laughs> it was uh God, what was the name of that but it was
2: it's not it's a Kevin Smith
3: movie? Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, it's yeah. So he made this movie. Oh man, I, I'm King, not even sure if I can say this.
4: Gilroy out. Loud. was
2: here. Was that the the one he shot in University of Florida?
4: So I, I know, like, I watched Red State and I watched. Yeah,
2: Tusk I, I love Red State, which is getting more and more important as time goes on.
4: Right,
3: but it's a no. It's Let's a movie. It here. It's a it's a horror movie, but it is a horror movie in the worst possible way like it is basically this clown uh like i have trouble bringing these words into the world is how bad it was this clown rapes this guy oh my god and like just keeps him just just destroys this man's life and it's just like this this movie that when you watch it you kind of want to wash your entire body and eyes like it is it is a lot to take in like solo yeah, well, yeah, I I would even go... As, it's because it's it's mentally
4: torturous. Is that the one, or...? No. Okay. Because I heard about this one. Uh, Terrifier 2 is apparently maybe one of the most violent, one of the most... Vulgar. Vulgar. Okay. Vulgar.
3: vulgar. And it lives up to its name. Okay. It's hard like, to get more vulgar than Solo. So, at least when you watch Solo...
4: Oh, so Brian Johnson, one of the... Uh, Brian
3: Johnson, one of the, Brian the wrote and directed Steve, Dave?
4: And yeah, Steve, uh, Dave, and Fanboy, Walt, Walt Flanagan. Yeah, it's just ugh. Oh, but just he's the he's the writer director of it. So it's probably Kevin's money. Yeah,
3: let's still it's it's view a skew. So yeah, but it is one of the uh, most traumatic events you'll have oh, in your oh, wait, life. Wait, okay. And yeah, I like I can watch Solo because I understand it's <laughs> a commentary. You know what I mean? It's like the same thing when you watch. Like, uh, I always use *Cannibal Holocaust* and *Solo* because they're just super fucked up movies, but there's a clear point to be made in each one of them, so you can kind of, yeah, like separate yourself from it. And it's like, oh, this is about the meeting of two different civilizations, you know? And this is how it works, you know? It's it's expressing a point, or like *Solo*, it's like this is what happens when bureaucracy gets out of control, mm-hmm. and da 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 but it's still, like, difficult to watch them pull eyes out of children.
2: Right. You know? Yeah, the, the – not to get hung up on Solo, but the, what sold me on it, because Criterion released it. So, first, I was like, well, if Criterion's got it, then it's got to be good, which is a, which, a, a false premise if ever there was one. I've seen plenty of shit on Criterion. I was like, why is this on Criterion? But regardless of that, you know, for a very long time, Criterion was the only, like, private club in, of media now they're fucking everywhere like shout factory and vinegar syndrome. And, and I love it. I'm on keynote buying DVDs all the time, but I was sold like, okay, well, Pierre Paolo Pasolini, I'd done some research on and seen a couple of his films and in, in school. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The description totally fit something that I want to see, which is the Republic of Salo, which is after the allies invaded Italy Mussolini was actually an elected official, and he was thrown out of office by his political council. They so said, you can no longer run Italy, you can no longer be on our council, you're no longer El Duce dictator, whatever, and they put him in a fucking prison. So, the Italians are now in a civil war. Half of them are fighting for Germany, and the other half are fighting uh, for the Allies. The Italians who are fighting for Germany are really only fighting for Germany because they know what's going to happen when the Allies catch up with them. So while all this is going on, Hitler sends a special commando to the prison that's on a mountaintop to spring Mussolini out of jail. And he is flown to Salo in the north and put as this puppet head of government in which he doesn't have any control because northern Italy is now an occupied territory of the Nazi Reich. The structure of the Italian state is now basically useless. They have power, but they have no way to exercise it. So they use it to just abuse the population, which is what they do. And this is Pasolini's way to say, look how disgusting these Italians are, who were his countrymen. And he was making a statement about Italian fascism. All of which I was into when I read that on the back of the fucking box. <laughs> <laughs> Like, this is my kind of movie. Wrong, wrong, <laughs> wrong. The, the uh, other person that you should probably uh, see a film of and then maybe steer clear of other stuff is Liliana Caviani, who's a brilliant Italian filmmaker. She made one of my favorite films called The Night Porter. The Night Porter is ostensibly about a, you know um, uh, a camp survivor, not a Jew. Uh, who falls in love with her abuser when she runs into him about 15 years later. Very complicated story about love. Caviani also did another film uh, about the American occupation of southern Italy when it it happened in 1943, and it was called The Skin. It was based on a book by an Italian author uh, whose name escapes me.
0: Dylan is referring to Italian author Curzio Malapote.
2: But it was basically about how the Americans showed up in Italy and could literally by people they they were so rich and so over the top um, with power that it, it it destroyed the Italian culture and it wasn't just them you know the British army showed up in, in Italy and we're not talking about just Brits there were there were uh, Indians in the British army there were Egyptians in the British army there were Muslims from Pac- from what would be Pakistan in the British army and this cultural uh, movement that happened in southern Italy was just the Italians just couldn't take it their their culture cracked underneath it, and it would it wouldn't uh survive probably very long if if something dramatic hadn't happened, which was the war finally ended, and Italy was saved from its occupiers mm-hmm. <laughs> basically so th- those themes are very interesting but they're they're very disgusting to watch in something like the skin or solo, which is just over the top almost not not as not like uh, dead alive but so yeah
3: yeah in a, in a in a much more difficult way to watch
4: right yeah no camp just all
3: yeah like, just all very stuff. serious about because it cuz
4: if you saw the same thing in in kind of a serious setting if you saw somebody actually getting tortured uh where you you hear the screams as they're 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 getting tortured by these things and it maybe harken back to a real historical event yeah this this would be unwatchable
5: yeah
2: right so. Well, zombies are just not serious. I think the closest yeah.
4: we've ever seen it in in
2: in a in recently is World War Z.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, World War Z was sort of pretending, putting it in sort of like a virus pandemic type of of situation. Of this is a serious thing that we're going against, but at the same time, it, it wasn't it wasn't so serious like Sala. It wasn't so, so serious yeah. like the Night Porter. Like it's still. Uh, quote unquote just a movie.
3: It's not grainy reality type stuff which is, you know what I mean, like that can make the whole the whole difference is just a matter of perspective I think a lot of times. It is. So you yeah. end up with, uh, you know, like I'm sure y'all have all heard the quote that humor is humorous pain in the third person. Like it's not funny when I fall down the stairs, right, but it's right. fucking hilarious like when you fall down the stairs. Right, right, And it's like the same sort of thing, you know, it's like when you're sitting there and you're made to kind of
1: internalize that shit. And
3: take it a little bit more seriously. All of a sudden, it becomes just vulgar, gross, deteriorating. I mean, there's stuff out there, man. Like, so uh, I have watched a lot of movies from across the world. Like, if you think that the stuff we put out, or for that matter, the Italians put out, holds a candle to what comes out of like Vietnam, like, (laughs) like, you are sadly mistaken. Really? Like, there is stuff out there that borders on snuff. Oh, and my by God. borders on, I mean it's fucking snuff.
2: Well but what? what about the Communist Party? I mean they permit stuff like that?
3: Yeah. I mean there's like they're Asians. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. I just mean like that their their history coming up to there has led to this point. It's not a media that they've ever had an issue with because they have like, you know, it's a it's a different perspective. You know, like we have vampires, they have hopping ghosts, you know, but it's all a lot of body horror. A lot of stuff, like you got Junji Ito, you've got stuff like Spiral, you've got stuff where it's like, you know, the horror stories are basically like body mutilation, like the one I was telling you about the other day with the balloon head thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of how that horror works, so it's not like a super huge jump to come out from Asian cultures to start putting out body horror to putting out, I shit you not, like, I mean, it's fake, it's all fake, but it's nonetheless snuff films, like look up a trilogy called Flower of Flesh and Blood. You will not watch it. You will not make it three minutes into it. They deglove somebody. Like with deglove somebody? Yeah. So they take this person and they put a glove on their arm and they dip it in hot water to cold water to hot water to cold water. And they pull the glove off and it removes all the skin on their forearm.
2: Now this is a special effect.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a special effect. But I mean, nonetheless, it's it's as realistic as you really want to see. But put into that context. You Know, not being humorous, like we just saw several people get their rib cage ripped out, and all of those, yeah, but it was
2: played as comedy, right? right.
3: And but when then when you put it into this other context, all of a sudden it becomes just sickening and vulgar, right? I think
4: one of the Saw movies had somebody's rib cage get kind of cracked. Oh my god, yeah, Yeah, like that's straight horror, right? Yeah,
2: so but we have have obviously differing cultural standards, like I remember when the Iraq war uh, cranked out al jazeera was getting a lot of uh footwork like people were just paying a lot of attention to al jazeera because they were they were the the only non-western um television force or reporting force that was in the middle east that you could somewhat trust like nobody was believing anything that was coming out of iraq you know there was oh no there's no american army here but then you watch al jazeera and it was like people getting fucking shot Mm -hmm. and shit blowing up and body parts like and Al Jazeera had no problems and still to this yeah. day has no problem showing anything like that and and uh, they tried to put it on American networks and the cable company said no like we're not no this is worse than HBO right this is right. crazy no and that it, it really limited to the to the effect of now like there's like Al Jazeera English which is a really really toned down uh, sanitized uh, version where they cover the same stories but they don't play. The same videos, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The IED is just going off. So, but their tolerance, like that, it was like in the, when I was in the People's Republic of China, twenty something years ago, and they would have, um, you know, pictures of executions mm-hmm. in the newspapers. But, the, yeah. the, but to talk about sex was absolutely verboten. It was like, uh, it was like the American standard to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Right, where we we permit violence and so forth, but we don't particularly like talking about uh, sex all that much. We're gonna ban those books out of the library type of situation. But in China it's worse, like when I was there, it was there there are zero AIDS patients in the People's Republic. Like that's just untenable. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. Right. But to, to say that you had an AIDS patient is to thereby de facto say you must have some percentage of homosexuals and the PRC wasn't going to mention that at all right so they they just said well nah no we're not going to talk about sex at all right so I could see where the Asian standard even in cinema for various films would be way different
3: yeah I mean it's all different look at our... so you look at like You know, even something as small as, like, so America in the 1950s and 1960s, we had the comics code, right? Right. And it totally just, I mean, choked out creativity for a certain point. So we wanted stuff sanitized because these are clearly kids' books. Prior to that, uh, it was a lot of horror. Like, comic books were generally based around mystery, horror, and romance and things like that. Like, superheroes weren't necessarily the thing that you wanted. I mean, it was pirates. It was black yeah. flags. They it was one stuff of, like one that. Of many yeah. Way. And so we put in the comic code, but the rest of the world did not. So mm-hmm. like the stuff that you had coming out of Italy and stuff like that at the time for their comics was very much horror based, you know, and we're sitting over here digesting it this away so that you end up with a big separation and perspective later on that you could see when you look at uh, Italian horror movies, mm-hmm. you know, like when they started coming out with the Italian zombie movies and all this other stuff. The the amount of gore, the amount of horror, the amount of all that, like just straight up dwarfed whatever we had coming out. And that's why you ended up with, you know, the great Italian horror movie producers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. At least in my opinion, that must have been how it played out. True.
2: Interesting. All right. <laughs> well, any other last words? This is, our, this is our second last word round. No, we're good. We're good. Oh, all right, weird. Paul. Thank you very much for coming. Hey, by. thanks for having me. I appreciate it and for choosing oh, oh, Dead always, Alive.
4: Always a pleasure. Yeah, glad glad that, uh, glad that you humored me on this one. This is a uh, it's kind of like a kid getting eating all of its Halloween candy in one sitting. That that's that's kind of what what Dead Alive is for me.
3: That is the best description of this movie <laughs> that I think of. It's just sheer childish indulgence. <laughs>
2: like. I wonder how. Uncle Les got that big. Ben, thank you very much for coming by. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me over. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to us ramble on about cinema, and in this case, a healthy dose of rock music. The Super 70 Podcast is found wherever you find podcasts. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdellandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time, Inside the Mine.
1: died probably about 10 years previously, was in the dream, she came to me in the dream. It's a magic moment, because you're actually there with your mother. So she seemed to know that I was a bit stressed out, and she said, don't worry, It's, it's, it's gonna be fine. Just let it be. And I thought, wow, and just felt really great that my mother had given me that advice, and woke up and was just remembering the dream, and I thought, what did she say? She said, let it be. And so I thought that was a great idea for a song. So I uh, went to the piano and, and wrote
5: it.